Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. If you enjoy this talk and want to hear other talks like it, don't forget to subscribe. It's a real blessing to be among you. I appreciate the invitation. As um, Dr. Carl mentioned, a number of the students here in the center, current students, um, I've been uh, close to, spiritual directees of mine. I've had a lot of uh, respect for the University of St. Thomas and the program of studies here for many years. I often will tell people when they're asking about where to go for graduate school these days, this is one of the places that I, I definitely recommend. Corey can tell you that, and Joe, and all the others who I uh, pushed, you know, pushed isn't the right word, pointed in this direction. And so I thank you for the, uh, your fidelity to St. Thomas and your, your efforts to, um, to bring the wisdom of St. Thomas to, um, to a new generation of students. So the topic I chose for today was a topic that I think is, um, I don't know if it's on the minds of everyone here, but at least I know it's on the minds of a number of people out in contemporary um, uh, Thomism. And early on, when St. Thomas Aquinas wrote his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, there wasn't uh, a ton of dispute about this question. Did St. Thomas actually have the same subject of metaphysics as Aristotle? I think most people um, just thought of it as being something that took it for granted that St. Thomas correctly understood Aristotle, correctly represented Aristotle, that the subject of metaphysics was ens commune, right? That is. Um, being commonly taken or being without restriction, however you want to translate that phrase. Huh? But um, one well-known contemporary position is that while Aristotle uh, speaks about the subject of metaphysics being being qua being, some people interpret that in different ways. Some people say that the subject of metaphysics really refers to separated substances, God and the angels, for example. Um, other people even go so far as saying that being qua being isn't really the subject of metaphysics in Aristotle's mind, right? That he's just talking about the separated substances or immaterial substance, <laughs> something like that. And the first time this question seems to have come to the fore was in the writings of a guy named Rudolphus Golenchensius, who was, um, he wrote in his preface to the Isagogian Primum Philosophium in 1598. He was a professor at the um, University of Marburg. Um, and he spoke of two different sciences. He distinguished between first philosophy and metaphysics. First philosophy, he said, was about being, I'm sorry, let's see. First philosophy, he said, was about being and its attributes, being as being, its properties and principles. But metaphysics, according to him, was about the various types of immaterial being, so God and the intelligences, okay, separated substances. So. That was the first time, as far as I know, historically, where there was a kind of a bifurcation made between metaphysics and, and what was going on. And he didn't make much of a claim about Aristotle and St. Thomas, as far as I know, in that work. But more recently, Thomists like um, Joseph Owens, Philip Merlin, and, um, and others, Robert Hahn, for example, would take the term being qua being to refer either exclusively or at least ultimately to separated substance, to separate substance. Huh? So um, the question then is, can we look at St. Thomas, can we look at Aristotle, and can we verify that in fact they have the same concept of a, a proper subject of metaphysics? Now here's some reasons to say that Aristotle's metaphysics really had as its proper subject 
separated substances, God and the intelligences. First, this is a rather um, very broad brush reason, but Merlin brings it up in, in early on in one of his articles. Metaphysics just means after the physics, right? And what do you study in the physics? You study sensible substances. What do you study after the physics? You study immaterial substances. So metaphysics is about things that are after the physics, okay? So that's one simple argument. A second reason can be found in books six and seven of Aristotle's metaphysics. There, in the second half of book six, and the beginning of book seven of metaphysics, you see Aristotle just gradually cutting off parts of being, it seems, right? So he considers uh, the distinct meanings of the word being in metaphysics five, and he says being is distinguished into being per se and being per accidents. And then being per se is subdivided into um, being as true or in the mind, real, and then real being outside the mind. Huh? And then at the end of book six, what you see is Aristotle excuses himself from considering being per accidents. He, he talks about it briefly, he talks about what it is, and he says, we don't have to consider this. Then he goes on, he talks about being in the mind, or being as true. And he excuses himself from considering that. He says, well, all we have to really talk about then in metaphysics is real being, right? Per se. And then you get to the beginning of Book 7, and what does Aristotle do? He says, well, um, look, we've got real being outside the mind. Those are in the sense of the ten categories. But really, we just have to talk about substance, because substance is first and prior to all those other kinds of being, the nine accidents. And so when, he, when he's done with the, the first chapter of Book 7, Basically, it looks like being as being is really just reduced to substance, which again seems to be very close to the idea that um, what you find in, in Joseph Owens, I think, and Philip Merlin. Huh? In addition to that, um, if you look at the very first line of Book 12 of the Metaphysics, he's, uh, a lot of works they just say, the subject of this science is substance. Just say that. So there's a second reason. Um, a third reason why this science would be about being separate from matter. Huh? In Book 6, Aristotle says that first philosophy is about those beings which neither exist in matter nor are defined with matter. Okay? But if that's the subject of first philosophy, that sounds like God and the immaterial substances. What kinds of beings don't exist in matter or are not defined with matter? Well, clearly it would be uh, separated substances and God. And to make the question even more acute, we can read this text from Book 6 of Aristotle's Metaphysics. One might indeed raise the question whether first philosophy is universal, or deals with one genus, that is, some kind of being. For not even the mathematical sciences are all alike in this respect. Geometry and astronomy deal with certain particular, a particular kind of thing, while universal mathematics applies alike to all. We answer that if there is no substance other than those which are formed by nature, natural science will be the first science. But if there is an immovable substance, the science of this must be prior and must be first philosophy. It sounds like he's saying that the subject of first philosophy is the science of immobile being. And then he adds, and universal in this way because it is first. And it will belong to this to consider being qua being, both what it is and the attributes which belong to it, qua being. Okay. Sounds like he's saying the subject of this science is 
separate substance, immo immovable, or at least immobile substance. Okay? Then finally, the last reason why we might think that this science has as its proper subject the separated substances in God is that Aristotle, in the 12th book of the Metaphysics, deals with the first being God and his properties. He talks about whether or not God is a knower, what God knows, talks about his happiness, things like that, right? Now, every science considers the properties or proper effects of its subject, and therefore, if Aristotle is considering the proper effects or properties of God, then God must be the subject of this science. Right? So those are a number of persuasive reasons why someone would say um, the subject of this science is really separated substance. Um, and some people take the tact of saying, well, that's therefore what Aristotle means by being qua being. And other people maybe take the tact of just saying, being qua being is not really the subject. It's just really where Aristotle's, he's really, really interested in the separate substances. And being qua being is just on the way there. <coughs> now, how to account, if this is a position you take, and the fact that, Arist that St. Thomas is very clear that this science deals with ens commune, right? as its proper subject. How do you account for that reading of Aristotle by St. Thomas? Um, and without making any kind of claims about is St. Thomas being intellectually dishonest about it, or is St. Thomas misreading because he doesn't understand him, or what? I'm, I'm being agnostic about those things. I don't want to attribute anyone's motives or anything. But the common um, position out there that is, that is taken in order to defend St. Thomas's reading is they say something like this. Well, you have to realize St. Thomas was living in a time when um, they were trying to distinguish between sacred doctrine or theology and philosophy, right? So in philosophy, um, if you have a philosophical science and its subject is God, and that happens also be, to be the uh, subject of theology, and for St. Thomas, Thomas, you distinguish, his, distinguish sciences based on their subject, Therefore, if they don't have a distinguishable subject, those sciences are not distinguishable from each other. Therefore, St. Thomas was confronted with a problem Aristotle never had to deal with. That is, if the subject of this science is God, then there's no way to distinguish philosophy from theology. St. Thomas was acutely aware of that problem, and so he had to kind of read Aristotle with kind of, you know, tinted glasses to sort of get to the position. Well, really, Aristotle's talking about ends communal here and not about God and the separated substances as a proper subject of the science. Okay? So that's more or less, in a nutshell, kind of the argument that is given for this bifurcation of Aristotle and St. Thomas. Okay? So far so good? All right, great. Let's take a fresh start and see if we can't unravel or untie this knot a little bit. Aristotle begins his metaphysics with a consideration of what is wisdom. And in fact, um, metaphysics is kind of a, in a lot of ways I, I have a, a bit of a, I don't know what the right word is, but I, I don't like the name metaphysics for the science. I know it's what everyone uses, but obviously it's not Aristotle's name, number one. It was first found in an editor of Aristotle's works on Dronicus of Rhodes, Metatophysica, right? It's the books after the physics. But it's not super descriptive other than the fact it's telling you like this is the stuff you read after the physics, right? Um, that might be another topic of discussion is like what order do we study these things in because I know that's a that's a topic of dispute too when, which science do we start with huh? but I prefer to use Aristotle's first name for this science and that's wisdom it just calls this wisdom huh? 
Um, he has a number of names. I think there's six total names Aristotle gives to this science within the work itself. He calls it wisdom. He calls it philosophy. He calls it first philosophy. He calls it the science of truth. He calls it theology. He's got a number of different names for this science. But I prefer wisdom. And Aristotle begins at the very beginning in his poemium, you would say, the first two chapters of book one, explaining what is wisdom, right? And he starts off with a nominal definition. He says, wisdom is the best kind of knowledge, okay? And then he climbs the ladder of the different types of knowledge we have. We have sense knowledge, right? Then we've got sense knowledge that's more internal senses. Then we get to knowledge that's more like practical things like art and experience. And then eventually he gets up to a science of causes. And he makes these comparisons. And at each place, he's showing this kind of knowledge is better than this kind of knowledge. And whenever he makes that comparison, he shows, well, this is closer to wisdom because it's more about the causes, right? So he eventually gets to the conclusion kind of right at the end of chapter one of book one saying, whatever this science is, whatever wisdom is, it's a science of causes. And then he goes on to say, well, what kinds of causes? And then the second chapter of book one, he goes and he says, well, it's not about just any causes. It's about the first or most universal causes. And among all the causes, the, the first of the causes is the good. And so ultimately, Aristotle says, he, he reasons from a nominal to an essential definition of wisdom. He starts off by saying it's the best kind of knowledge. He concludes by saying it's a knowledge of the uh, first and ultimate causes of things, especially the good, the ultimate final cause, which he justifies by when he gets to the end of book 12, he's looking at God precisely as a common good of the universe, right? So you see him kind of finishing that arc there. So, um, to just read one text from Aristotle there at the very end of chapter 2. For it is necessary that this looks at the, the first beginnings and causes, for one of the causes is a good, and that for the sake of which. It's important to see what Aristotle means here by the good. He doesn't mean an ethical good. He means a metaphysical good. Just to distinguish, what do I mean by that? Um, the ethical good is the object of um, choice from the perspective of the human will. Okay? The metaphysical good is the good which is the perfection of every inclination in all being, right? So even rocks and plants and um, things that do not have choice strive for some good, right? It's that good that Aristotle's talking about when he's talking about the ultimate good of the whole universe, okay? And so that's the first thing he gets to. What's first known about wisdom, the easiest thing to know about wisdom is the fact that it's about the ultimate causes, right? And, and that's relatively simple for most people to see. If you ask an ordinary young person, you say, tell me what a wise man knows, right? And they'll say, well, a wise man knows like the ultimate why of things. He can answer the question, why? What's the meaning of life? What's the ultimate reason for things? That's fairly straightforward, okay? But Aristotle doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, okay, we're looking for the first causes. Let's start. You'd think that's what he does and just goes there. But then, the next thing he does is he starts a kind of a dialectic. First, he looks at what his predecessors have done. He says, did they find wisdom? And he finds out, well, they, they made some headway, but they didn't find wisdom. They didn't even really understand, as Aristotle says in a rather remarkable text, they didn't even understand any of the four causes well. Isn't that interesting? Even material cause, his predecessors did not understand correctly or perfectly. Right? They didn't have a, a correct sense of prime matter, I think, is Aristotle's view. Unless you really understand the final cause as good, 
you don't know any of the causes precisely in their proper mode of causality. Isn't that interesting? So he goes and he shows, okay, my predecessors haven't come there yet. So then he starts off in book two, and he starts saying, okay, is there a first cause? And he argues there's got to be first in each genus of cause there. And, um, and then he talks about how is man towards knowing the truth. He talks about intellectual custom a little bit and different things like that prepare the way. Then he starts his dialectic. You think, okay, finally, we're going to get start talking about the first cause. He's got all the dialectical questions he raises in book three. But then he gets to book four, and he's not done yet. He makes a very intentional argument where he argues from the fact that metaphysics is about the first causes, especially the good, to the fact that metaphysics is about being as being. Okay? Here's what he says. This is uh, book four, chapter one. Now, since we are seeking the principles and the highest causes, clearly they must belong to some nature in virtue of itself, that is, per se, there must be a per se cause, right? That, uh, and a per se effect of these first causes. These must be the elements of being, not accidentally, but as being. Accordingly, it is a being as being that we too must find the first causes. So Aristotle reasons to the fact that this science is about being as being from the fact that it's about the first causes. Right? Well, we know first it's about the first causes. Then he says, hey, what's the proper effect of those first causes? Well, the most universal effect, being as being. Okay? So now he's there and he's saying, oh, okay, well, now we're done. And then Aristotle does something that's counterintuitive. A couple chapters later, he goes and he, tells, he talks about why um, this science also has to be about the axioms. Why on earth would the wise man consider the axioms? Right? Because the axioms, of course, are the first self-evident principles. Things like the same thing cannot be and not be. And the whole is greater than the part. And stuff like that, which any fool knows. So it's very counterintuitive that this science, which is wisdom, should be about the things that everyone knows. That's about the last thing you think this science is about, right? But that's exactly what Aristotle reasons to. Here's what he says in Book 4, Chapter 3. It is clear that the axioms belong to all beings as beings, for that is common to them. Thus the investigation of them too belongs to him who is to know being as being. So Aristotle does this argument, it's a long extended argument, that basically says wisdom is about the first and ultimate causes. From that he argues to the fact that it's about being as being. From there he argues to the fact that it's about the axioms. Once he does that, smack dab in the middle of chapter 3 at uh, 1005, uh, it's 1005 B7, Aristotle then turns the whole book around. And from that point on, he starts talking about the axioms, especially the first of the axioms, defending the principle about contradiction. Then, starting at five, book, or the, uh, book five or six, depending on how you see that, he starts talking about being as being. And then, starting at book 11 or 12, depending on how you see it, he starts talking about the ultimate causes. Do you see what he's doing here? What's, what's best known to us are the axioms. But what's best known to us about what wisdom is about is the first causes. What's least known to us are the first causes, right? But on the other hand, what's best known to us is that the wisdom is about those first causes. So Aristotle does this very interesting sort of argument all the way to the middle of, of book four and then turns it around and starts his investigation. So in some way, it's right there in the middle of book four, chapter three, that Aristotle begins his search for wisdom in earnest. All the way up to that point, he's telling you what wisdom is about. It's fundamentally about three things. It's about the first causes, especially the good, and that includes the separate substances. 
It's about being as being, and it's about the axioms, which are the statements about being as being. Okay. So now that we've got that in mind, I think then we're in a better position to understand why people hold the positions they do. Aristotle says that um, when you've uh, resolved the difficulty most beautifully, not only are you able to see the re resolution of the problems, but even why there should have been a problem in the first place, right? As he does when he, he gives a definition of place, for example. So, let's start then knowing or at least acknowledging that the science of wisdom is about all three of these things. Let's see if we can narrow down what is it about precisely as its proper subject, okay? Because to be about something is not the same thing as to be about it as its subject. So this requires us to go back to the posterior analytics and Aristotle's doctrine about science and how do you get science, okay? So there in uh, book one, chapter one of the posterior analytics, Aristotle says there's three things that need to be known in advance in any science, right? You need to know the subject of the science, you need to know the principles of the science, and you need to know the properties or proper attributes that you're going to demonstrate, okay? So to take a simple example, I've got an argument that goes, um, man is rational, rational beings are visible, therefore man is risible, okay? So for Aristotle, that conclusion, man is risible, is the science. Science is about conclusions, right? As Aristotle says, we suppose ourselves to have unqualified scientific knowledge when we know the cause of a fact is the cause of that fact and of no other, right? The proper causes of a necessary um, conclusion, right? So the conclusions are the science. And then you have the principles, which are the premises, right, that establish those conclusions. And then you have the subject and the property, okay? So the subject, of course, would be the grammatical subject of the conclusion. So in that conclusion, man is risible. Man would be the subject of that science. For Aristotle, for St. Thomas, both, the object of the science would be the conclusion itself, or it would be what you're reasoning to or from the subject. In other words, if I'm looking at my subject and I want to look prior to my subject at its principles and causes, the principles and causes of the subject can be in some way known as the object of the science. In another way, you can say that the conclusions, which include the proper attributes that belong to that subject, are also the object of the science. But in a different way, you're going forwards and backwards. I'm reminded of the, um, the line, one of my teachers, um, a guy by, by the name of Dwayne Berquist, who was a really wise man, he used to love quoting Shakespeare here. He said, the reason is the ability for large discourse, looking before and after. Huh? Right? Large discourse that is about the universal and looking before your subject and after your subject. Right? For Aristotle too, you have a subject in the science, you look before it at its principles and causes, you look after it to its properties or proper effects. Huh? And so therefore, um, that's what Aristotle is doing here. Right? He's looking both for the principles of his subject and also the proper effects. Right? Now, since the subject must be known in advance, Aristotle says it's got to be the best known thing in your science. In fact, he says in other places, no science proves the existence of its subject, right? And what do you need to know about the subject according to Aristotle? You need to know both that it is and what it is, right? 
And very what it is and that it is of the subject. What you need to know about the principles, which would be in this case maybe the axioms, huh? is that they're true. And what you need to know about the properties, which are things like risible that you're going to prove belong to your proper subject, is what the name means. You have to have a definition of the properties, but it's not an essential definition. It's a definition that's nominal. And how do we know that? Because if it's a property in the strict sense, it only has existence in its subject. And therefore, the only way you know it actually exists is when you've already drawn the conclusion that this, sub, this property belongs to the subject. So if risibility, for example, is a property of man and only has existence in the subject man, you only know that risibility exists in reality once you see that it is in its subject. Right? So therefore, you're starting with a nominal definition that is a definition that says what the thing is but without knowing whether it is. Um, at the beginning of your science of the property, you have the nominal definition. And then through that nominal definition, you show that that um, property belongs to its subject. Okay? So that's where you, that's the posterior analytics. That's kind of a, just a, a quick sort of summary of that. Now we're in a position to say with more clarity and certitude, so which of those things that I mentioned, the ultimate causes, uh, being as being, the axioms, which of those things is a science about precisely as its proper subject? Okay. Since Aristotle says, that the subject is best known, and you never prove the existence of a subject in that science, right? Only a prior science could do that. It is abundantly clear that God and the separated substances cannot be the subject of this science. They are just not best known to us. We do not already know about God and the separated substances at the beginning of wisdom. We do not know that they are even, much less what they are in any fundamental way. He proves that. You have to go away all the way till book 12 before he proves that such things exist at all. Huh? So, while they cannot be the subject of this science, they certainly can be the object. And Aristotle says exactly that. Uh, 1064b6. First philosophy considers the noblest of beings as its proper object. He's very clear about calling them the object of the science and not the subject. Okay? So, that's one thing. In contrast, what is best known? What's the most certain thing you could know? Being as being. No philosopher in all of history has ever denied that something exists in some way. Right? You could say there's nothing outside the mind. Well, then you say that being as being is being of reason. Fine. But you still think there's being. Right? You might say that all beings are sensible beings. Well, then you're saying being as being is sensible and mobile. Fine. No one's denied that being as being exists. Even Parmenides, right? Is it, there's this one being. Denied mobile being. You know, Kant may have denied that we can know in any distinct way things outside the mind. However you cut it, everyone admits that there must be being as a kind of a subject. No one ever has to reason to that or prove the existence of being as being. Right? As long as you don't qualify it. As soon as you say being as mobile, now Parmenides has a problem with you. Or if you say being real, being outside the mind, now Kant might have a problem with you, right? Or whatever, right? But nevertheless, no scientist, no philosopher has ever denied that being as being exists and that we're certain about that. And so that means that this subject is clearly most certain and an excellent starting point, right, for wisdom. An excellent starting point for wisdom. He doesn't have to defend it 
in this science. Okay? So there's the first argument there. Now let's look at more distinct texts of Aristotle. Okay? Aristotle says in Physics, Book 1, Chapter 1, that in every investigation in which there are principles, causes, and elements, science comes from knowing these. Right? So every science where there are principles, causes, and elements, you would look for those. Huh? And he says that this science, that is, wisdom, investigates the principles and causes and demonstrates the essential properties of being as being. Aristotle says that. Here's a text from uh, Book 4, Chapter 1. This is 1025b, 3 through 12. We are seeking the principles and causes of beings, but clearly as beings. For there is a cause of health and good physical condition. And there are principles and elements and causes of mathematical things. And in general, every science which proceeds by thinking, or which participates in thought to some extent, is concerned with causes and principles. But all of these sciences, marking off some being or some genus, conduct, conduct their investigations into this kind of being, although not into unqualified being. Okay? So this one science looks at the principles and causes of being precisely as being. That sounds like the proper subject of a science. I have a little tangent here real quickly. Sometimes you'll read, it's not super clear in Aristotle, it's more clear in St. Thomas. St. Thomas will distinguish between the subject genus and subject matter sometimes. For the most part, that distinction to me seems to be this. The subject genus is for sciences that are more speculative. The subject matter is more for sciences that are practical. So for example, if you've got a subject matter of um, carpentry, that's art. The idea of matter is I put form into matter. And so carpentry, subject matter is art. The subject matter of, say, logic would be you know, words insofar as they signify things through thoughts or something. Subject matter of ethics, again, practical. Be, um, human actions insofar as they're um, directed to an end through choice and intention, something like that, okay? So each of these are things which you impose, reason impose a, imposes a form on, so you understand why you call it subject matter, right? Subject genus is more about the kind of thing, and of course genus and matter are analogous to one another, huh? Um, and subject genus, as far as I can tell in St. Thomas, he tends to prefer to use that language to refer to speculative sciences like mathematics, the subject genus of mathematics would be quantity, right, as imaginable, for example, the subject genus of this science would be ens commune or being as being. Okay, just FYI. Now, besides, Aristotle says in Book Four, again in Chapter One, and again in Chapter Two, also in Book Eleven, Chapter Three, and Chapter Four, that this science considers being as being in the same way that arithmetic considers arithmetic considers numbers, geometry considers lines and surfaces, and natural philosophy considers mobile being. And I'll read you one text here. Just as there are proper attributes of numbers, quantum numbers, such as oddness and evenness, commensurability and equality, excess and defect, whether these belong to numbers essentially or in relation to one another, and likewise there are other proper attributes belonging to solids, whether motionless or in motion, and whether without weight or with weight, so there are proper attributes belonging to being as being, and it is a task of the philosopher to examine the truth about these. Okay, so. Arithmetic considers numbers as its proper subject. Geometry considers lines and surfaces as its proper subject. Natural philosophy considers mobile being as its proper subject. Therefore, according to Aristotle, 
Wisdom considers being as being as its proper subject. It's not about it just in any way, but precisely as its proper subject. Okay? So those are texts from Aristotle that I think really demonstratively prove that for Aristotle, the subject of this science is being as being, understood in the same way St. Thomas understands that. Okay? So let's turn then to the, the objections I raised and see if I can give some sort of a response to those objections at the beginning. When it says the first objection, I think is relatively straightforward. Metaphysics means after the physics, right? Well, it's true that metaphysics is learned after you learn physics. That's not the same thing as saying the subject of physics is known before the subject of metaphysics. Those are two different questions. Do I learn one science after another? Do I know the subject of one science after another? Those are two different questions. So I think just confusing those things. I do think we know being as being before we know being as mobile. Now, truth be told, being as mobile I think is self-evident, but at least you get people like Parmenides who have, has trouble with that. Melissa, Zeno, you know, whatever. Second objection. Books six and seven has Aristotle cutting off parts of being. Right? He cuts off accidental being, paracidens being is true, the nine accidents. So it does not seem to be the same as ens communi of St. Thomas. Well, here's what Aristotle's really doing if you read his text carefully there. Here's what he says. I'm looking for the principles and causes of being as being. Now, how am I going to economize that? Right? Well, what he notices is that being per se is the cause of being paracidens. He says, being paracidens is reduced to being per se. Therefore, if I can figure out the principles and causes of being per se, I've already figured out the principles and causes of being paracidens. So now I, get to, I don't have to worry about being paracidens because I've already figured out its principles and causes through looking at the principles and causes of being per se. The next step he takes is, well, what about being per se in the mind and being per se that's real outside the mind? Well, the being per se which is in the mind is caused by real being outside the mind. Therefore, if I can figure out the principles and causes of real being outside the mind, I've also figured out the principles and causes of being per se in the mind, so I don't have to worry about that one now. And then he gets to the beginning of book seven. He says, well, let's look at real being outside the mind. That's in the sense of the 10 categories. Well, it turns out substance is prior in practically every way to accident. If I figure out the principles and causes of substance, and substance is the principle and cause of all the accidents, then by determining the principles and causes of substance, I have determined the principles and causes of all the nine accidents as well. Therefore, now all I have to do to figure out the principles and causes of being as being, everything, accidental being, being in the mind, accidental being outside the mind, whatever, all these different things, I can figure all that out just by figuring out the principles and causes of substance outside the mind. So he's not cutting off parts of being. He's cutting off what he needs to do in finding the principles and causes of everything else. Since there's a determinate causal relationship between all those things, the nine accidents, being in the mind, and being paracidens, they're all causally related ultimately and rest on real substances outside the mind. By considering just that, he has sufficiently considered the principles and causes of all being. He's not cutting anything off. Um, next, when Aristotle says in Book 6 that first philosophy is about beings which neither exist in nor are defined with matter, that is true about ens commune. Once you figure out 
that there are beings that exist apart from matter. What you know now is being as such is not defined with matter or without matter, to be honest, right? Being as such is not defined with matter. Not only that, nor does being as such exist in matter. Being as such is, so to speak, agnostic to matter. Can be in matter, cannot be in matter. So, Ens Kamuni satisfies the conditions of what Aristotle said. This science is about being insofar as it is not defined with matter, nor does it exist in matter. Right? There's a difference between considering one thing without the other and separating and saying that it has to exist without matter. And Aristotle never says that. He never says we're considering as a proper subject of this science the beings that exist without matter. Right? He just says that this science is about those things as its principal object. So, um, finally, Aristotle considers the properties of the first being God. So God must be a subject of this science. Well, here's how I understand that. Once he gets to the fact that God exists, one of the things he wants to know is what's the relationship of God to his proper effect, which is being as being, right? So of course he's going to talk about God precisely as a cause of being, right? And especially as a final cause, right? Book 12, chapter 12 of the Metaphysics, it's all about God as the common good of the universe, right? But in the meantime, he also wants to know other things about God, and there's no prior science for Aristotle to talk about those things, and he can know those things. So this is something equivalent in my mind to, to um, you know, what you might find in the posterior analytics when Aristotle talks about a demonstrative regressus, where he says, hey, um, let's reason from effect to cause to what is the cause of a <coughs> lunar eclipse, right? And once I know the cause, then I can reason backwards to other effects from there. Huh? So I think when Aristotle treats God there, it's natural for him to ask questions about what can I know about this first being. And since that first being is a being, right? He falls still under being qua being in some way, though strictly speaking, he's a principle of being qua being, right? He studied in the science of metaphysics precisely as a principle of being qua being. Nevertheless, he qualifies as something we can talk about and talk about at least as proper effects. So those are my um, responses to those different objections. And I think probably that's good enough for today. And we can open it up to discussion at this point. Between 
what you're saying, just being, and then being as being, right? How would we draw a distinction there? I guess what I would say is this, that um, when we talk to one another, and especially if you're dealing with like little children or something like that, and they use the word is, you know, all the time. For the most part, when little kids use the word is, they're talking about this particular sensible thing. This is this, this is that, this is that. Huh? Um, and granted that that's the case, that the first things that they know are the object of their senses. The question then is, what is best known in their mind, right? And Aristotle is very clear about the fact we have two different knowing powers. We've got sense power, and then we've got intellectual power. Huh? And what we notice is that there's almost a reverse order with regard to those. In our senses, what is individual is best known to us, our sense knowledge. In our intellectual knowledge, the more universal you get, the better known it is. Right? If you ask someone, is man a rational animal? You might get a fight on that. Huh? But if you ask someone, is man an animal? For the most part, people don't put up a fight about that. They're like, yeah, man's an animal. Right? And even more so, say man's a substance. Right? Even more so, well, man's a kind of being. Right? Whatever. And so, if you're just thinking about being, precisely as it's best known to us, implicitly you're thinking about being without any particular restriction in the mind. You know, you may not formulate it that way. Very often things that are so universal are like the air we breathe that we don't realize that's what we know first. But my contention is, without explicitly being able to formulate it that way, in fact, what we know first is being as being, not being in some particular way. And proof of that is that all the philosophers, where, where all these philosophers disagree about everything, right? It used to be said um, in my high school class when I was teaching philosophy to high school students, I get this argument. Philosophers disagree about everything, therefore philosophy is not really science. And philosophers don't disagree about everything, right? In fact, all philosophers agree there's some kind of being out there. Some say it's this, some say it's that. But the very fact that no philosopher ever denies being as being, even though they'll deny being as mobile, being as in things and whatever else, is a sign that implicitly they all were working with the same pre-conscious just sort of knowledge of being as being, though maybe they wouldn't have formulated it that way. So that's my contention is that maybe you wouldn't put it that way originally, but once you reflect on it, you realize all along you were talking about being as being and not being in any particular way. So, I don't know if that responds to your question or not, but... Can, can I ask a follow-up sure. on that? Yeah. Because um, it seemed towards the uh, end of the presentation that you did connect knowing being as being to knowing that there are beings that are not sensible or material. Mm -hmm. Is that... So, I think that, that maybe yeah. was a cause of a hang-up for me. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because being as first known or being as most known... Yep. Um, might the, that would be a reason for saying it's not the same as being yeah. as being if you think recognizing being as being requires knowing sure. the existence of the immaterial. Yeah, okay. So I do not think that knowing being as being requires recognizing the existence of the immaterial. Okay. I don't think that. Um, here's what I think. I think that the only beings we're aware of at first are material beings. And therefore we have no reason to suppose that being as being isn't material that one of the properties of along to being as being is mobility or you know, changeability. And only later through some argument we realize, oh, 
mobility and matter don't belong to being as being. I didn't know that before. But here's an interesting thing. I, was, I remember teaching one of my high school students years ago. And he was arguing, it's impossible that there be immaterial substances. Right? He was arguing, he says, he says, substance can't exist except in matter. And I said, really, what is it about the definition of substance that tells you that? What do you mean by substance? He said, well, I guess it's just a, something that exists on its own. Right? I said, anything in there about matter? So in principle already, at least there's a possibility that being as being is not material. Right? The very notions we have, the original notions we have, don't tell us one way or the other. We're just inclined to think that it's material because every single instance we have to induce from is material. But still, at least, it's a little bit like this case. If the only crows you ever saw in your life were black, you might think that being a crow required that you, you're black, that you have black feathers. But then if someone asked you, even without ever seeing a black crow, any possibility out there that there might be a crow that's not black? I think most people say like, yeah, if you held a gun to my head, I, you know, it's possibly I'm not buying a crow, I guess. In the same way, I think with regard to, to being as being, you might say, all the substances, all the beings you ever saw were material. But if someone held a gun to your head and said, is that con the content of your very notion of being that's material? You know, I don't know. Maybe in principle you find something out there that isn't. So, I don't know. I'd say I have another like follow-up, but oh, maybe yeah, I'll okay. come around. Thank you, Father. Sure. So you mentioned the fact that Aristotle gives different names for science of being mm -hmm. as being. And then um, I thought also of another text where St. Thomas gives three of them in his commentary on Boethius's De Trinitate. Oh, yeah. But he says, we call it, I'm, I'm not remembering, remembering it exactly, but he says, we call it metaphysics insofar as it studies, I think, ens commune, he probably says there. Okay. We call it first philosophy insofar as it studies the first principles. Yes. And we call it theology insofar as it studies God. And then maybe he says in the angels too. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. So um, are those different names then, and perhaps also the, the six that Aristotle gives, I think he said, would those different names be um, kind of inter interchangeable names of this one science of being as being, or would those, would those names name sub-sciences? And so I guess that's also yeah, part of okay. the question. That's can question, metaphysics okay. be divided into sub-sciences just uh -huh. as, say, physics can be divided yeah. into biology and chemistry mm -hmm. and things like that? So with different okay. you know, sub-subjects, maybe. Okay. This, the second question is harder to answer. The first one I can answer with some, with some certitude easily, I think. Um, those different names that Aristotle gives here and that St. Thomas gives, I do not think those names name different sciences or different parts of this science. I don't think so. I, I think it's analogous to the sacrament of uh, confession. We name that sacrament by different names. We name it confession by the primary act that the penitent does. We call it the sacrament of penance, right? We call it the sacrament of reconciliation from its effect. And yet we're naming the same sacrament in all three cases, but we're naming it based upon some aspect of it. So in those different names that Aristotle and St. Thomas are giving to this science, the names are being given to it, not all on account of its proper subject, but sometimes on account of the principal thing that's studied in it, right? Or sometimes on account of um, the order in which it's learned or some property that belongs to the science. And so I do not think those different names are naming different sciences, nor do I think those names are naming subsets 
of this one science. I don't think that, okay? I think they're all naming the whole science, but naming it through some aspect of it that's better known to uh, one, one individual or another. Okay? Now, whether or not this science can be divided um, into other sciences, um, let me give a, at least let's do a dialectic here and see. If this science is about being as being, and the whole point Aristotle makes is we don't divide up a part of being, then, a fortiori, you'd say it has to have a maximum unity. You know, as Aristotle says, what's divided in lower sciences is united in higher sciences. Right? Just as the senses divide the different proper objects of color and sound and flavor, but the common or central sense unites those things in our internal senses. Right? And then the intellect unites what's divided in the senses. It would seem that also, with regard to the, the human sciences, one should unite what's divided in all the others. And since this science doesn't cut off anything of its subject in any way, therefore, I think the argument would be that this science cannot be divided in principle into other sub-sciences. Okay. Um, now, maybe someone might object on the other side and say, hey, I can look at being as being, but under one formality or another. That's an interesting question about, like, can I look at being as being under different formalities? That's a different question. Would that constitute, it would, whatever it is, it wouldn't constitute a formally distinct science in my mind. So, anyway, there you go. Those okay. are my thoughts on that. Well, so then if in, um, in, uh, in the same commentary on Boethius' De Trinitate, St. Thomas talks about there's three main sciences, mm -hmm. physics, mathematics, and metaphysics. Mm -hmm. But we often divide metaphysics, or sorry, we, we divide mathematics into geometry, geometry and, uh, arithmetic. and arithmetic. Yeah. So then what... And I guess those would be truly sub-sciences. Mm -hmm. Would you grant that? Okay. So mm -hmm. then why yep. is that a different case than metaphysics? Well, okay, so look at those two sciences, right? What you have in those two sciences, uh, geometry and arithmetic, is both of them consider the indivisible as a principle there, right? They both consider, as a, their subject is going to be quantity insofar as it's imaginable. That's true about both of those sciences. But look, I've got irreducible principles there. I've got um, the unit which is that which is indivisible, and then the point, which is that is indivisible with, with the position or location. Huh? So there's a kind of um, incommensurability or some kind of irreducibility. In, in, those two are irreducible to one another. Um, and therefore, you have something that is the basis for a, a formal distinction between different subsciences of under mathematics there, I guess. I just don't see that in being as being. Okay. I just don't see that in being as being, where I can see that in quantity, but I don't see that possibility in being as being. So that's my, that's why I would say the difference. Uh, Gina. Yes. Thank you, thank you, Father. Sure. Uh, my question is regarding uh, knowing that the first cause is immaterial. Yes. It's in Thomas Aquinas, that yeah. if you think that uh, it is required to know that first the source is immaterial to be able to then know that the first cause of the universe is immaterial uh, according to St. Thomas and if there if Aristotle uh, and St. Thomas would hold the same view uh, on how regarding how to arrive uh, at knowledge of, of the first cause being immaterial hmm. okay um, I do think that the places in Aristotle where he arrives at the existence of immaterial substance are the end of De Anima, book 3, chapter 5, the end of the physics, book 8, and the end of the metaphysics, right? 
book 12 and um, the beginning of book 12 there, huh? I do think those are the places where Aristotle argues to, and he, I, he thinks demonstrably, to the existence of um, immaterial substance. Huh? Um, then the question, I think, if I understand it, is do Aristotle and St. Thomas have the same argument for arriving at the immateriality of substances? Is that what, am I right, rightly understanding your question? Not of substances, but of the first cause, of God. Just of the first cause. Yes, that the first cause is immaterial. How? Because in St. Thomas, you arrive yes. to knowledge of the first cause through its effects, no? But yes. in created nature, there are no, the, only the human soul would be, Okay. And that if in Aristotle, yes. that is also that, uh, yes. Aristotle okay. also thinks that. I think, I think I understand your question better now. Thank you. Um, I would say this. Certainly St. Thomas and Aristotle think that unless the human soul were immaterial, we could not know that there was a first cause that was immaterial. No doubt about that. But I think both of them do not think that the proof for the immateriality for the human soul is a step in the argument for the immateriality of the first cause. I do not think that either Aristotle nor St. Thomas think you need to prove or even know that the human soul is immaterial in order to know that the first cause is immaterial. I don't think they think it's a step in the proof. I do think they think that any kind of knowing of an immaterial thing presupposes that you have also you're an immaterial being that, that's capable of that kind of knowledge, and therefore it is presupposed in that regard, uh, presupposed on the part of our faculties, not on the part of the argument. Um, do I think they have the same argument? I do think that some of their arguments are the same. I'm of the opinion that St. Thomas has additional arguments that may not be exactly in Aristotle, or at least are only implicitly found in Aristotle. Um, I think St. Thomas had, you know, was able to think through things with Aristotle and other thinkers that came before him, and so as a consequence, maybe was able to develop other lines of argument that you didn't find in Aristotle. For example, if you look at his De Ante et Essentia, he talks about the real distinction between being and essence, and he seems to arrive there, you know, being by participation presupposes being through itself and then gets to a being that is being through itself, and that's got to be immaterial. And I don't think that's found in Aristotle explicitly anywhere. But on the other hand, I think that the five ways are all found somewhere in Aristotle. Um, by the time you get to the end of the five ways, you don't know if God's immaterial yet. He has to go further in the Summa to do that. But um, most of the arguments you find for God's immateriality in the Summa Theologiae are the same as Aristotle's arguments, as far as I can tell, in substance. Some in the Summa Contra Gentiles, the Summa Contra Gentiles has more arguments than the Summa Theologiae does for the immateriality of the first cause. And some of those, I don't know where they would be found in Aristotle, and I don't think they're in Aristotle, but that might be due to my ignorance of Aristotle, not to the facts. So. All right, those are my thoughts about okay. that. Uh, Rodrigo. Yeah, thank you, Father. I think in a way you already 
address this when you answered Dr. Carl's follow-up, but so it seemed to me that that you were saying that the well-being as being, which is the subject of metaphysics, is something more known to us than say something as being as mobile, mm -hmm. since Parmenides, for instance, yeah. would, would deny that. Right? Yeah. And we know that we must begin from say what is more known to us, you know, yes. first study of things. Yeah. And yet at the same time it seemed that we would argue that we should first begin with physics and then move on to to yeah. metaphysics. But yes. if if the subject yeah. of metaphysics is more known to us, why yes. can't we yeah, start with metaphysics? Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's a good question and that touches on the question of the order in which we learn the sciences. All right. Um, you know, interestingly, my contention is that when you start off physics, natural philosophy, in some sense, you are starting with being as being, but what you don't know yet is that being as being isn't mobile, which explains why Aristotle spends some time at the beginning of the physics doing something that seems to be appropriate only to the science of metaphysics. That is, refuting those who deny the subject of the science. Isn't that interesting? So, strange that Aristotle should defend the existence of mobile being. Right? You would think that's supposed to be done in metaphysics, right? Because that's a prior science to physics, right? But Aristotle doesn't do it there. He does it at the beginning of the physics. Why? Because at this point, we don't know whether or not physics is distinct from first philosophy. So I want to read that text you I actually quoted earlier, because that's a, a good text that shows what Aristotle had in mind here. He says, um, we answer that, if there is no substance other than those which are formed by nature, natural science will be the first science. So when he's starting off doing physics, he, as far as he knows, if he doesn't know the existence of immaterial substances, as far as he knows, he is doing wisdom. And being as being might just be mobile. He's willing to entertain that as a hypothetical. And then uh, he says, well, therefore, I've got to defend the existence of my subject here, if there's mobile being. Um, and only later is when he gets to the end of the physics, he says, hey, there's an immobile being. Huh, being as being isn't mobile. Therefore, there's got to be distinct science. Now let's, now let's really investigate being as being understood precisely as extending beyond mobile being or material being, and then at that point he knows the content of being as being does not include matter or, or change. That's my contention about that. So, There were a couple of people on Zoom who wanted to ask questions. Uh, first, uh, Stephen. Yes, thank you, Father, uh, for your talk. Sure. Um, in, in discussing the, the distinction betwixt uh, Aquinas and Aristotle, to go back to the commentary on Boethius, mm. uh, particularly those important, what is it, questions five and six, I think. Yeah, yep. Uh, I think St. I Thomas, that uh, tells us there, it isn't merely that there are levels of abstraction mm. that are connected to the speculative sciences, but that metaphysics has a, a peculiar mode of abstraction. Yeah, it's a separation. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, there's negative judgment. Mm -hmm. and I, I don't think that's an Aristotle, is it? So is that possibly a, a, an avenue to pursue there? Um, well, I actually, well, when you say negative judgment, maybe I need to understand you better. So here's how I understand St. Thomas to be speaking 
in Boethus's De Trinitate, his commentary on Boethus's De Trinitate, um, he says, look, I can look at beings and I can say, hey, can I consider this being without that being? Right? His, his, his main point is saying, if A depends upon B to exist, then I can't even know A without knowing B. Okay? And conversely, I can know B without knowing A. Right? I can do that. So he says, he looks at the, the order of dependence of existence. And so he says, look, um, I can uh, know um, universal sensible matter, okay, without knowing the individual sensible, mat sensible matter. I can abstract, so to speak, and consider um, these sensible things in a universal <coughs> way. Not saying that, in fact, they exist as universals, like, you know, maybe the Platonist thought or something, but just that I can consider them without considering all the material individuating conditions of sensible, individual sensible matter. And then I can go farther and I can consider quantity without any sensible matter, um, but I still have some kind of understandable matter, which in St. Thomas's mind is just substance in some way, right? Um, under dimensions in some way, huh? So, um, so those first two abstractions are really a, considering A without B, without, with being agnostic about whether or not there's a separation. But then when he gets to um, first philosophy, he says, there I'm actually making a judgment that being exists apart from matter, or specifically form exists apart from matter, right? It's a separation of form from matter that St. Thomas says is a foundation for that distinct science there. Um, so, when you say that negative judgment, do you mean the same thing I just described, or do you mean something else? Well, as you outlined there, the, the other two sciences involve simple apprehension. Yeah. Right? Yep. But it's judgment and metaphysics. But it's negative judgment, it's a via negativa. Yeah, this I'm does not exist with that, yeah. Right, I'm asking then, is that the difference between the approach of Aristotle and St. Thomas? Well, I'm, I would be hesitant to say that. I do think St. Thomas is clear in a lot of areas where Aristotle was not super clear. But one of the things I found through I, just years of reading over and over again uh, the metaphysics of St. Thomas's commentary is there are a lot of things that it's clear Aristotle holds that aren't obvious on the surface right at the beginning. And I think that Aristotle holds exactly that, that there's a negative judgment being made that you have um, substances existing apart from matter and, and that is a necessary precondition for understanding this science to be distinct from, first philo from uh, natural philosophy. That text I just read you, it, it sounds like he's saying that. Let me just reread that one text where he says, if there is no substance other than those which are formed by nature, natural science will be the first science but if there is an immovable substance, this, the science of this must be prior, must be first philosophy. I think there he's making the is he's talking about there, if there is no substance other than those that are natural and there is an immovable substance there, that that is making a judgment and making a negative judgment about the fact that this substance does not exist with matter. So I think that's right there in Aristotle in my opinion. So I'm, I'd be hesitant distinguish St. Thomas there, but 
Right, it strikes me, yes, it's a, it's certainly a, a judgment. Uh, I mean, it involves a copulum, but is it negative? I, no, it doesn't strike me that way. In the physics, I don't think it will. Is it book seven and eight? Yeah, book seven and eight, yeah. And then book 12 and the math. Yeah. Maybe the metaphysics there, but I'll, I'll let it rest with that. Okay. Thank you, I appreciate that. No, it's a good, it's a good question, but um, yeah, I probably have to think more about it. Uh, Dr. Squires, did you have a question? You may be muted. Yeah. Ah, there we are. Um, my question was, um, can I hear your follow-up question, Dr. Carl, and see the answer to it? <laughs> I suspect I know what your follow-up question um, is, and I'd like to hear the answer to it. Well, I mean, I think it's been touched on by some of the, um, yeah, some of the subsequent uh, conversation. If, um, if being as most known is being as first known, uh, if, but if you can know being as being just in the sense that you could know hypothetically, you, you gave the example of the crow, you know, being, you know, maybe they're albino crows. If that's sufficient to say you know being as being, you may have answered it. So uh, it, it, you, you think in order to distinguish being as being as the subject of its own science. As a sub of subject need, of a science distinct from natural philosophy. Yeah. Then you would have to know. Okay the existence of immaterial substances yeah. but you don't need to, you could but but as aristotle says natural philosophy would be first philosophy there there would natural philosophy would be the science of being as being there's no getting out of that there's got to be a science of being as being somewhere right yeah. um so so um, uh, i mean father dewan's way of yeah. you know talking about this this problem about you know the distinction between metaphysics and natural philosophy is to kind of turn it on its head and you know suggest that the the, the issue is not the independence of metaphysics from physics mm -hmm. it's the independence of physics from first philosophy it's not so much so it's it, and rather than thinking of it uh, is there yeah, a science right. beyond physics no. that actually makes sense to me that's okay. right i agree with that i think that's what aristotle is saying in other words he says for good reason that parmenides um talk about this because he thought he was doing first philosophy yeah uh, absolutely yeah i think that's exactly right this is it's not about distinguishing or separating metaphysics from physics. It's about separating physics from metaphysics and not mistaking the physics for first philosophy. I agree. I completely agree with that. David, did you have a another question? No, I, that was the okay. clearest articulation of the question I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just asking, asking you to ask it for me. Okay. Yes. Uh, there was a question back there. Oh, please. Yeah, thank you, Bart. Thank you very much, Father. Um, sure. If I understand this correctly, which is somewhat doubtful, early on in Jolson's book on St. Thomas, yeah. uh, Christian Philosophy of Consequence, yeah. he distinguishes uh, Thomas and Aristotle mm. by saying, um, the, the distillate I take to be this, that Aristotle offers an, a metaphysics of substance, while St. Thomas offers a metaphysics of the act of existence. Uh, yeah. um, yeah. First of all, and then he, uh, then uh, Gilson uh, claims that the latter is an advance on form. Given your earlier remark about the relationship mm -hmm. between the text of Thomas's commentary and mm -hmm. the original text of Aristotle, sure. I'm wondering, do, is it, do you think that what Gilson is saying amounts to something like what you're saying in that the metaphysics, the act of existence, uh, where ends is yeah. a active present participle, yeah. or, you know, Fritz Wilhelmsen used to say is a, sure. uh, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> is tacitly present in Aristotle? Hmm. Okay, I, I, here's some things I'll say about that. No, I'm no expert on Gilson, and I don't want to 
you know, present myself as an expert on Jilson. Um, I do, I'm familiar with that dispute, I'm familiar with it, and I have um, a position on it. Um, first of all, I do think this is true. I think it's true that St. Thomas made much more use of the real distinction between being an essence or essay and essentia there than Aristotle did. I do not think that the distinction is absent in Aristotle. I can show you three places where it's clearly in Aristotle. Mm -hmm. It's in the Posterior Analytics, Book 2, Chapter 6. St. Thomas says it's there, and he says that's where he got it from <laughs> in his own commentary. It's in the De Anima, Book 3, Chapter 5. Otherwise, you can't make sense of what Aristotle's saying when he says that um, the intellect and act is the thing known. Okay? And I think it's, again, in the Metaphysics in Book 6. So I think there's places, but it's, it's few and far between, where Aristotle makes some explicit distinction between what a thing is and the act of existence, its essence and its act of existence. So I think it's absolutely true to say St. Thomas went way beyond Aristotle with regard to that distinction. Mm -hmm. That being said, I do not think it's true to say that um, that is what formally distinguished St. Thomas's approach to metaphysics and Aristotle's approach. I think that um, St. Thomas, throughout the metaphysics, his own metaphysical considerations, is constantly talking about what things are. And look at the different works he's written that are metaphysical in nature. He doesn't restrict himself only to the active existence of things. For St. Thomas, as for Aristotle, metaphysics or wisdom, from more properly, is about the good as a final cause. That's what everything's about. It's not about the actus ascendi. It's about the good as a final cause. And, as St. Thomas makes very clear in many places, the good as a final cause embraces even the being of potency, which is in matter. Okay? And therefore, the actus ascendi would be too narrow or too impoverished a view of wisdom from St. Thomas's perspective. So I disagree with Gilson about the, the fact that he thinks that, Arist for St. Thomas, he thinks that it's a metaphysics of the octus ascendi, and for Aristotle, that it's a metaphysics of substance. Actually, for both of them, it's a metaphysics of final causality, and seeing all being precisely in relation to the ultimate final cause. That's my opinion there, so. Thank you. Sure. All right, as always, uh, conversation can continue, uh, but let's thank uh, Bob Walsh. If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to Talking Thomism. Thanks for listening. Talking Thomism is a production of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. The Center for Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. To find out more, please visit us at www.stthom.edu slash cts.